substitution for you. All eyes on Graham Paul. Simunic, I'm certain, was yellow carded earlier on, and Graham Paul has forgotten about it. Oh, and Siemens has been beaten. It's a goal. It's Ronaldinho. Oh, it's not a bad ball for Pelé on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. Oh, what a great goal that was. Hello and welcome to episode one of Got Got Need, a World Cup podcast. Today we are talking about Italy at Italian 90. Calibra poi bene su De Napoli, da questi avviarli verso Giannini, inserimento di Giannini, colpo di testa, avviarli, tiro! per Schillaci tra due avversari sulla ribattuta Giannini e a terra un giocatore cecoslovacco Giannini da Baggio e a terra Piedi triangolazione Baggio Baggio che convence Baggio 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 finta di Baggio tira grandissimo di Baggio grandissima impresa di Baggio veramente bravo ha fatto So yes, hello and welcome to episode one of Got Got Need. It is a World Cup podcast. Um, We figured that given that this is the first episode, we would do a bit of an intro at the start to sort of tell you who we are and uh, why we're doing this. So my name's Chris Robinson. Uh, His name is Liam Baxter. Hey Liam, how are you? (laughs) Hey Chris, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. Um, I guess if you want to give some context, I suppose, to why we're doing this. We had, I suppose you you texted me with the idea, must have been about two or three months ago now. Um, Mm. And I guess now that we're under lockdown, it was kind of the best time to kind of start. And there's no live football, so why not just watch old football? Yeah, make the most of coronavirus quarantine and uh, talk about tournament football that we both really like. You know, we're both, you know, really into tournament football, um, you know, the World Cup in particular. I think that World Cups are, are quite fascinating. There's, you know, they exist in their own sort of little ecosystem, their own sort of, um, you know, their own world. You know, club form can go completely out the window people can do crazy things people can do brilliant things um yeah it's, it's just a, a really interesting sort of topic so a, conde- a condensed one month kind of period where you get anywhere from one to three games a day um which for i guess football <laughs> fanatics i guess is kind of bliss yeah <laughs> and they all exist in a vacuum as well you get that kind of one month period where you feel like anything can happen so yeah yes and uh it's probably better for us to talk about world cups than our own football teams i'm a long-suffering portsmouth fan and you are a qpr fan and i think if we were to do a podcast talking about portsmouth or qpr it would be uh quite miserable yeah pretty depressing backstories and nothing but sort of recent relegations good fun <laughs> yeah financial mismanagement by a certain harry redknapp i mean that applies to both yeah. of us so that's that's fine cool so um 
yeah as i said at the start episode one is about italy at italia 90 and i guess we've chosen this for a particular reason and for me the thing that interested me the most is that in england italia 90 has you know a really um you know fond place in you know the bulk of football fans sort of hearts and minds and everything because it's the one that england could have won it's the you know the the nearly you know the bobby robson the gaza crying all of that sort of thing um but in the rest of the world it's considered like a really poor tournament because there wasn't a lot of goals there you know wasn't a, a lot for, for the rest of the world in particular there wasn't a lot to talk about um so I thought it would be interesting to sort of look at it from the perspective of of the hosts and and you know what they did and how they got through it because they did all right you know yeah I think it works as a good a good kind of jumping off point for this series for for both of us because I mean this taking Italian ninety this is this is the first tournament sort of just before I was born so I've got zero first hand experience of any of this so all the knowledge I have mm-hmm. is coming from all the knowledge of summer 1990 comes from like nostalgic social media posts and think pieces from the guardian and stuff like that. So I'm, yeah. I, I've used this as, as kind of uh, a research experiment of just to see exactly what it was and sort of delve deeper into just beyond the one night in Turin documentary that I've seen before. Yeah, that was, that was what I was just going to say as well, actually is, you know, there's a lot of, you know, articles, think pieces, documentaries and stuff um, that exist in, certainly english media sort of looking at it from the english team's perspective but if you just look at that tournament from that one team's perspective it can sort of skew everything else that happened because i mean yes we're talking about italy in um in this episode but we could do a whole other episode just talking about argentina and everything that happened with maradona i mean yeah there's there's so many sort of talking points and things that went on you know just within this one summer um in italy it's yeah it's uh no shortage of material no definitely definitely not it sort of seems to be a, i think italian 90 is a lot of people's kind of entry well a lot of i guess kind of podcasts and journalists that i listen to and read about like it's their entry point into football so mm. for them from what I, basically from what i know about italian 90 it's sort of just dripping in sentimentality more than any other <laughs> tournament in world football so it's italian 90 and euro 96 are the two kind of near misses from from an english perspective mm. so yeah so this is kind of a lot of writers and journalists that i read and enjoy yeah enjoy reading um it's kind of their first foray into football so yeah coming from an english perspective italian 90 is kind of where it all begins for a lot of people um yeah around our ages anyway so or within sort of a 10 year age uh, age bracket um so no it's kind of interesting to see what it was like coming from the perspective of a different nation so (laughs) from from italy in this perspective Hmm. cool well let's set the scene um it's 1990 um italy is about to host the world cup you know what do you what did you find when you were looking into to you know the the lead up to italia 90 about sort of what was going on in the country and the mindset and everything you know prior to the tournament kicking off i think one of the main points i gathered from sort of looking into this a bit more is that i read that a lot of kind of the italian mentality around it was a lot of the public were left like quite uneasy by the amount of public money that was sort of being funneled through the the sort of spiderweb of local authorities that uh, and they it left plenty of stadiums kind of unfinished and not quite there um mm. because i i guess the way that italian football is run um all the money gets sort of funneled out and 
goes in all sorts of different directions and then you've got the kind of criminal gang element to everything as well that mm. it means that the money doesn't exactly get to the it doesn't normally get from always get from a to b so yeah, i think yeah. a lot of people were just quite worried were things going to be ready for the opening day um mm. that was kind of the, the the main takeaway i had from sort of i guess researching into setting the scene yeah i think uh one of the, so i i looked um more specifically into like the stadiums themselves mm-hmm. so um i mean there's know, some, in, there's some it, gems in there yeah i mean it was interesting for me that the stadio uh deli alpi you know the the um juventus stadium in, in turin yeah yeah was you know developed specifically for italia 90 and then demolished in 2006 so it wasn't even really around that that long so that's um, yeah so what's that 16 years that's yeah I didn't. I didn't know that. I thought that. I thought the Del Alpi was around for a lot longer than that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know that you know when you listen to certainly sort of um, Italian sports journalists, it, that stadium was you know derided and hated by people because the you know the atmosphere wasn't that great. It was a pain in the ass to get to. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't loved. So I think you know from a Juventus perspective, it probably made sense to demolish it and make something that was a bit more fit for purpose for the direction that they've been going in in recent years. Yeah. Um, the other sort of brand new stadium that was built for this was the Stadio San Nicola in Bari, um, which again I found really interesting because Bari are currently in Serie C, so they're you know currently playing in the third division of italian football with a fifty-eight thousand seat stadium jesus <laughs> which which blew my mind a bit i'd love to know what their average attendance is for serie g then if their if their stadium holds fifty-eight thousand. <laughs> yeah yeah and also like i play a lot of football manager so i i, I thought when i was researching all this i'll go on football manager and, and start a game with bari and sort of see what happens and yeah they've got this massive stadium that is probably a nightmare for them to fund and you know to, and just to fill to yeah maintain um yeah they, they they don't get you know thousands and thousands of people turning up to it so um but yeah yeah wild a lot of the like stadiums said, as well had the running tracks around as i noticed as well which sort of oh God. i guess that's something that the olympic stadium in london for sort of west a lot mm. of west ham fans complain about the atmosphere is not great because you're so far away from the pitch and imagine that i thought that would have had more of an effect on the tournament than it did yeah, I I have my own views on running tracks. I don't think that they're they're great in terms of um, atmosphere. And you know, as a Portsmouth fan, you know, my team play at a stadium where the fans are incredibly close to the pitch, and that creates a very unique sort of hostile atmosphere. And that's sort of what you want. Um, but you know, the Italians do things differently, and you know, respect that. I guess. Um, I'm just surprised that sort of, the, it, it seemed to be that from a lot of the highlights I watched and some of the full games, it's just, there was a running track. The only one that I noticed that didn't have one was the San Siro. And yes, yeah, yeah. I just didn't realise that athletics was such a, a big thing in Italy that every stadium seemed to warrant an athletics track around the outside yeah. of the pitch. Well, you mentioned some of the other stadiums that were sort of used for the tournament. And, you know, there are some, you know, iconic names in the list you know the san siro in milan the stadio olimpico in rome the san paolo in naples which we will talk about um oh we'll get to and that. then some, some some smaller ones i think one of the things that i really liked was that they sort of spread it across the whole country it made it really feel like every part of italy was included um you know you've got the luigi ferrari in genoa you've got the 
you know the stadium in Palermo, the um, the Renato in Bologna. You've got the Cagliari Stadium, Verona Stadium, uh, Udinese Stadium. You know it's it's from top to bottom of the country. You know they've sort of included everyone, which I, you know, from a romantic point of view, I I think is a nice touch. Yeah, they stretched it as far and wide as possible, which I think that's kind of what you if you're going to have if you're going to host a tournament in a country, I think you it, it's good to include as many cities and as far and wide as like different. Um, yeah, just as different atmospheres as possible. Yeah, it's kind of what you want from a World Cup. If you know, if it's coming to your country, you want you know everyone to be included and, and feel part of it, and it to feel like a a really sort of united sort of country. Yeah, which I think that's what it did. It kind of it, it did unite Italy in in a way that, and well, I guess, I guess it wasn't the most united country. It's a relatively new mm. country, Italy. So I think you've got a huge divide between the north and the south. And I think Italian ninety really did bring everyone together. Cool. So next we're looking at the squad and the manager. So starting with the manager, what did you sort of find about him? What See, I, I didn't really him? know too much about the Italian manager going into this. I, I always thought it was Arrigo Sacchi, but he actually took over just afterwards is what I found. Yeah. So I was com- I, I went into this whole thing convinced that it was Arrigo Sacchi that took Italian, uh, Italy into Italian 90, yeah. but he was 94, I think, or yeah, so basically, uh, I'm going to butcher the guy's name, and I apologise to anyone who is Italian who <laughs> listens to this, but uh, Azelio Vicini, um, he was a former Sampdoria and Brescia player who managed the Italy under-21s from 1977 to 86. Um, and then he was sort of um, promoted to the full sort of first-team manager so he's gone. He's gone the Southgate route then. He's, he's yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he he was manager. Um, you know, involved in the Italy setup for for a long time. You know, like I said, you know, seventy seven to eighty six for the under twenty ones, and then Italia ninety with the, um, the 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 main team. He lost his job after failing to qualify for the Euros in nineteen ninety two, and then was replaced by Arrigo Sacchi. Right. Okay. So that's where he comes into the fray. Then. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the famous and that's like a Rigo Saki in his absolute pomp as well. That's after you know doing everything with Milan. So yeah, it takes yeah, them on to the uh, World Cup final then. So mm. yeah, but no, I was convinced that it was a Rigo Saki. Was proved wrong. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting from the perspective of his involvement in the under twenty ones and under twenty threes and all of that sort of thing. The effect of that and the impact that that has on the squad. Because when you look at the squad itself, there's. I thought it was a really good balance of, you know, experienced players, people making their debuts, and some of the names in there are just incredible when you look back. Um, you know, you've got uh, players making their debuts include a 21-year-old Paolo Maldini, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, <laughs> and uh, a 23-year-old Roberto Baggio, the divine ponytail himself. Yeah, this is this, like the looking through the names of the squads, because this is kind of where Syria, like, in the, throughout the 80s and 90s, Syria was where the majority of the world's talent was you've got kind of mm. Maradona at Napoli obviously um, Van Basten Rijkaard and Hüller at Milan and then Mateus Klinsmann and Bremer sort of the German contingent at Inter it's and so that's same. that's when I mean the front the, the Italian front two was Gianluca Vialli and Andrea Carnevale um, you've got so many stars throughout yeah I think um, when you look at sort of other sort of big names key players in that squad you you know you've got your Carlo Ancelotti 
Um, Donadoni's in there as well. Yeah, Roberto Mancini. You know, I was thinking about this this morning actually. Like the number of managers that actually came out of this squad. You know, you know, people think of Carlo Ancelotti now when they go, oh yeah, you know, Real Madrid, Chelsea, Milan, all of this sort of stuff. You know, he was a very decent player before that. You know, and he played in you know numerous you know tournaments with Italy and you know won things and almost won things and. Yeah, the trophy yeah. cabinet between those that, that, that group of players turned mm-hmm. managers must, <laughs> must be yeah. absolutely huge. Yeah, and, you know, there's... I mean, you've already mentioned uh, Viali. I think there was a lot expected of him sort of going into this tournament. Um, and as we sort of go through, you know, the games, obviously, you know, we'll be mentioning him a bit more. But I think, for me, it was interesting to sort of see how he did really, really well in the uh, the Serie A season you know prior to the tournament and so obviously you went into this with a lot of expectation but didn't really hit the ground running and you know found himself uh, being substituted and swapped out for for Roberto Baggio in a few games and you know Baggio scored what 17 goals for Fiorentina and then signed for Juventus for eight million pounds or yeah that was a world record at the time yeah, I think the thing that the thing that took me by surprise, I think, was Viali's hair. Firstly, I only ever think of Gianluca Viali as a as as, as an egg, um, but yeah. now he had the curly mop. Um, and yeah, so it the, looks the, like a wig. Yeah, no, it definitely does. <laughs> sort of flops around in the wind, and you're like trying to trying to. Yeah, that is Viali. It's definitely Viali. Yeah, um, it's the smile that gives it away. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and then uh, there's I think also that the the one missing from the the players making their debuts would be would be Toto Scalacci himself. So. Ah uh, yes, yes. Come the on big to, man. to Toto. I think well, he was he was picked after it's seven seasons in Serie B and then moved to Juventus and got 15 goals in his first season for them, which sort of earned him a call up because I was looking into I think Italy played seven is it seven yeah seven pre-tournament friendlies just before Italian ninety mm. and it was uh, Viali and Carnevale could just combine for two goals between them and so I think wow. um, the sort of the, the managers looking for just something extra up front. Um, mm. because you've got quite a balanced squad between the defence and the midfield and it's just that the attack seemed a little bit blunt going forward um, yeah. or finishing their chances anyway. Um, I guess that was just for the Italian national team though because as you've already said, Viali had quite a decent season going into the tournament. It was just, I think, the, the friendlies the friendlies leading up to it. Um, mm. They weren't, they were, I guess they were snatching at chances and weren't quite finishing teams off, so... That's really interesting. I didn't. I didn't know that about the sort of the the build up to the tournament. So, I, I suppose Skilacci's inclusion in in the squad and and you know the, certainly the number of games that he got. It was you know the manager didn't really have much of a a choice or you know he was able to sort of take the risk, roll the dice, and just sort of see what happened and if it could mix things up a bit. Yeah, I think he won. I guess if when you look at Skilacci as well, he'd be one of the last. I suppose one of the the last few players that would kind of come out of nowhere because I guess now when you watch yeah. a World Cup, you watch a World Cup in 2018, 14, 2010, you kind of know everyone going in. There's no real surprises yeah. because of, I guess, you've got Football Manager, you've got the FIFA series, there's YouTube available. I mean, yeah. on UK telly, you can get La Liga, Serie A, the Bundesliga. You you can watch any game, really. Yeah. Um, and so players don't crop up as surprises, but I guess to to most to most audiences Toto Scalacci would have come completely out of left field mm. um, on as a substitute 75th minute of the first game and you're kind of scratching your head wondering who this is and three minutes later <laughs> he pops up with his first goal of the tournament so I guess he would have been one of the last names 
to kind of come out of nowhere before this whole sort of globalization of the sport mm. ruins the element of surprise well that leads us nicely into the group stage so the first game was against austria um as you mentioned you know there was a uh the debut goal of the of the tournament and italy's debut goal in the tournament was um was a header from Salachi. I think that in this game, it should have been more. It should have been more than oh, one. Oh, without, without a doubt. The Austrian defenders continue to shoot themselves in the foot throughout the first half and sort of just handing over scoring chance after scoring chance yeah. to the Italians. But the Italians either shot wide or over the bar or I looked up the, the Austrian keeper afterwards, Klaus Lindenberg, and he just made sort of save after save after save. So, mm. And it was only when, yeah, when Carnavale comes off in the 50, uh, 70, 75th minute yeah. that things change and you get a sort yeah, of I mean he had a really great great chance in this game as did Ancelotti and they probably both should have scored but you know you could maybe put that down to the first game of the tournament sort of settling into it all and everything um yeah you get your tournament th- the opening game nerves out of the way yeah and I thought you know the, the goal was actually a really nice bit of work from Viali to you know the cross was really nice and it's kind of unselfish of him you know to sort of sit there and look up and go well, I know that someone's there. I can just get this in the box, and yeah, he just kind of lofts it in from sort of the right, the right byline, mm. and then Scalacci sort of finds that it, it's quite a small pocket of space as well between two yeah. defenders, and yeah, makes it one 0 and yeah. that's kind of how, that's how it ended as well. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the next game is um, against the USA. Um, it was another one nil, so not loads of goals in the first couple of games, but a win's a win's a win. So. One of the things that um, I thought was really interesting with this game was, you know, obviously the goal itself is probably the main talking point of the game. Um, was it Giannini who's, who scored? Um, uh, have I got? Yeah, I've got. Yeah, Giannini. Yeah, he puts it. He puts mm. the Italians one 0 up. Yeah, um, I thought that the there, there was a penalty incident in this. I thought the penalty was outside of the box to me. I thought it was outside of the box. If there was VAR in the nineties, that there's no way that penalty would be given. But I thought, I thought, I thought it was a bad take by Viali. But you know, what can you do? Yeah, I think just the with the with the goal in this one, it sort of like completely contrasted to the last one. The last one sort of a lofted cross into the box, and this one is yeah. just uh, it's just a, it's a thing of beauty. The ball starts kind of on the left hand touchline and is sort of fired off the thigh of Nicola Berti and then bounces to Viali and his fluffy little perm. He draws the defender in, but dummy straight over, and then Giannini oh, sort just, of just—it's—it's yeah. it's beautiful, and he just lifts it over the leg of whoever the American defender is, and sort of drills low into the corner. So you got two Italy scored two goals in the first two games, and yeah, complete opposites of each other. <laughs> that Viali like little feint, that dummy was—it's was it's beautiful, very yeah. clever, yeah. very very clever. And this is the thing I think you know people look at you know Viali in this tournament and go, oh, we didn't score that many, but his contribution was huge. Just even those first two games, you know, the cross. For the goal against Austria, the little faint dummy um, for the goal against USA, and that's just really clever play. Yeah, no, it was it was just, it was just excellent forward play, like I say, sort of dragging the fe- the defender out of position, dummying over, and then mm. yeah, just allowing sort of Giannini just that that small bit of space to move the defender out of the way and yeah. drill into the bottom corner. And then Scalacci almost had the same goal again. You almost did the exact same thing against uh, against Austria, against the USA. So third game in the group stage was against Czechoslovakia. Um, so that man again scored again, Toto. 
Yeah. Got, uh, <laughs> it was a really nice sort of curling header, I thought. Um, I, I, yeah, I thought that was uh, good work by him. Yeah, so that's um, two two in three games for him already. I think yeah. this is the first this is the first game he starts as well. He comes on as a sub mm. against Austria, obviously, with 15 minutes left, makes it 1-0. Comes on a, as a sub again against the USA. And then he gets his start against the Czechs once they've already qualified. So, mm. and yeah, makes them pay by scoring again, <laughs> sort of t- second in in three games. Um, and then the Baggio goal just—I mean—he just completely pulls down the pants of the Czechs defense. So he's the star of this game, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think he could have had a couple in the first half. He was a you know really dominant uh, against the Czechs. Um, yeah, like you say that. I, I wrote down in my notes that I thought that the the Baggio goal was almost Ronaldo esque, original Ronaldo, like the way that the ball almost sticks to his feet and he's able to. Yeah, his close control is out of this world. Yeah. yeah, it's just it's really really special. It's something that if you haven't seen, it's definitely worth YouTubing mm. because, yeah, if if you've if you grew up watching a lot of um, O Phenomeno himself, you know Number Nine, then it, it, it's it's so similar to that that type of play. Yeah, he just bulldozes his way kind of and, and faints around as well. That's kind of the, mm. the defence. And like you say, yeah, the ball just sticks to his feet like he's got glue on it. It's <laughs> the close control on that goal is is just world for pure world class. So three wins out of three. Three clean sheets quali- as well, yeah. zero conceded. Yeah. Qualify from the group stage comfortably and draw Uruguay in the round of sixteen. Yeah, so this is one I think uh, and just I wasn't sure whether Uruguay would have been one of the easiest, someone you'd hope for in the in the round of sixteen. But the first the first goal, Scalacci just sort of leathers it straight down the middle. Um, and one thing I did, I, I tended this is something the first I noticed this in in this Uruguay game. Anyways, that sort of players looked a lot ganglier back then, sort of all yeah. limbs. And I watched uh, as I watched the the sort of eight minute highlight pack, like the football just looks a lot more improvised. It's sort of got balls bouncing mm. all over the place and ricocheting off legs, like some kind of pinball machine. It just seemed that football back then just looked, yeah, it looks a lot more improvised than whereas now I feel like it's a lot more, it looks a lot more like art. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, now that, you know, these days there's, there's so much more um, emphasis on the in-game tactics and, you know, positional play. And if that person does that, then you need to do this. Um, like you say it was a bit more sort of free flowing back then. But yeah. That first goal, um, what a hit! Oh, it's just it slided through to him just on the edge of sort of the eighteen yard box, and then it kind of loops up and over the goalkeeper, but kind of through where he hit, like it, mm. it goes sort of just over his head. Where he, I really feel like he should get a hand to it, but I, I think it just hit far too hard <laughs> for him to react to it. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting as well that's. Skilachi's first goal that he scored with his feet. Oh, of course, the first two were headers. <laughs> first two were headers, yeah. yeah. So, you know, going back through the highlights and everything, you're almost sort of cheering this guy on, going, you know, you've got two with your head, you've got one with your feet now, you kind of got everything, you know, good on you. The second goal was um, a set piece. Um, Serena uh, scored the second. Um, I thought it was a really, really well-worked set piece. Um you can see if you if you look at where he's standing, he gets away from his marker really early on. So as soon as that ball's lofted in, he's got so much space um, to to get ahead on it and and get it in. It's very very clever play by him to sort of you know essentially lo- lose the guy who's been tasked with masking uh, marking him. Sorry and 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 get all that space. 
Yeah, so that, like beautiful delivery as well. It sort of comes in, it's just like exactly where he'd want it to be. Mm. And then, as you say, he sort of gets away from his marker and he's able to sort of get the jump on him. Yeah, so the game finishes uh, 2-0, another clean sheet. Uh, and they go through to the quarterfinals where they draw uh, a star-studded Republic of Ireland. He looked through the team sheet of that as well. <laughs> Oh my word. It is absolute box office. Jack Charlton in charge, Mick McCarthy, Andy Townsend, Niall Quinn. And Cascarino's in there somewhere as well. Yeah, comes off the bench. Yeah, John Aldridge, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was really interesting that, you know, when you, le- when you search for highlights of uh, Italy versus Republic of Ireland, one of the first things that normally comes up on YouTube is 1994 because they play each other again at, at USA 94. So, um, it's interesting if you if you watch the the two you can sort of see how the the teams develop over time and everything but obviously we're focused on the the 1990 game um i thought that um i don't know why i don't know if it's just because you know jack chart and all the big names in the ireland squad i thought this could have been like the one that italy go out at you know the big shock or whatever but you know like they have done with um a couple of games so far in the, in the tournament they they found a way yeah they just managed to get they squeaked the one goal and then just shut the door on the iris from what from what i saw the sort of from i've seen sort of the build up and the game itself it sounds like the the irish really thought that they could get at the italians and they thought yeah. that they 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 really had a chance of going through. Obviously, they've gone into the game realizing that they're going to be up against the hosts, but mm. i didn't see much from the irish to to warrant well, I, I didn't think that that was kind of correct, if that makes any sense, because, because yeah. they, they didn't they didn't bring too much to the game. What, from what I saw, it was the majority of the Italians attacking Irish defence, and then once the yeah. Italians go one and up, it kind of switches a little bit. But the Italians keep them out, keep them at bay pretty easily. Um, yeah, I mean the, the goal, um, the initial hit from Donadoni, I thought was was really good. Um, to be honest, it's poor keeping. It's terrible keeping. If you yeah watch watch the skill actually go back. Sort of Paki Bonner parries the uh, Adonadoni shot, and then somehow he kind of manages to fall like six feet to the left of his goal, <laughs> which <laughs> just uh, the ball falls at Skilacci's feet, and it just leaves yeah. him with a wide open net to fire into. It's it, it's a, quite a baffling piece of goalkeeping, really. It's it, it's the, the ultimate shots, poacher's goal. Yeah, the shots hit pretty hard, but it yeah I don't know how he sort of manages to parry it out to just outside the six yard box, but also fall sort of six yards to his left and just mm-hmm. leave the. I mean, the goal was just was just gaping wide open. So, I mean, something I noticed from watching highlights from the tournament in general is that that's like a theme with goalkeepers. There's a lot of this parrying going on rather than, you know, trying to get a, get a hold on it or put it aside, put it away for a corner or something like that. It's it's a lot of goalkeeping in certainly from other teams other than Italy is is all about parrying it away. So, I don't know if that's something to do with um or like a new the technique of, they'd learned around that time of, or yeah the state of goalkeeping in the you know late 80s early 90s um but yeah I, I just thought that you know of all the things that the republic of ireland did well you know goalkeeper the goalkeeper let them down <laughs> by parrying it and putting the putting it on a plate yeah i mean of course this is kind of the last tournament uh, I guess you've got Italian 90 and Euro 92, the last two international mm. tournaments before the back pass rule comes in. So goalkeeping is completely different by that point. You don't have yeah. goalkeepers using their feet. But we see it very rarely anyway, these tournaments. It's just when the, when the ball gets passed back to them, they can just pick it up and leather it downfield. Yeah. So I think that's 
something that you can take into account is that yeah goalkeepers were very different pre-1992 so Italy beat Republic of Ireland 1-0 um, again clean sheet yeah, no goals conceded just sheet. yet yeah and uh, go through to the semi-finals against Diego Maradona's Argentina yeah this is this is this is the game of the tournament for me anyway I think you've got so much backstory and so much sort of lead up to this one game and it's so um, prescient that it's kind of it's in Naples because you've got the four years leading up to Italia 90 you've got Maradona moves moves to Napoli and he sort of throws all of Italian tradition out the window by kind of dominating Italian football with a southern provincial city um, sort of winning two Scudettos two second place finishes a UEFA Cup and a Coppa Italia um, and yeah I just think it's hugely poetic that it kind of comes to this where you've got the Italian national team taking on Maradona and his Argentina in a city like Naples where Maradona is sort of revered just as a god and has literally just just won the league with Napoli and so it kind of feels very poetic that that's where it should happen that's the setting for the game yeah and I thought it was interesting um and it's covered in the the Diego Maradona documentary about you know he essentially asks the citizens of Naples to to support him against Italy and you know to basically sort of says you know you know I, I am I am the the guy that you love please please support me and my Argentina team against you know your your home country and I, I think it really it really divides people in Naples um, certainly when you watch the documentary you can see some people are like no I'm a proud Italian you know yes we are quite a divided country but I, I still identify as Italian so no I'm not going to support you and other people are very much like yeah, I'm I'm Neapolitan above anything else, and and you know you're one of us, so I'll support you. Yeah, I think that's something that de- it definitely came through quite well because I I watched that documentary. Must have been it was on Channel Four about two mm. weeks ago, and I think that's the first time I'd seen it in full. So I watched I watched it then, and something that really did come through was just how the Neapolitan sort of the players and the fans were treated at grounds around the country. I mean, yeah. the chance based on. Uh, it's sort of well, they're all centered around sort of being like unwashed or dirty and not yeah. not true Italians. Um, and I think the quote from I think I, I think this was Maradona that says Neapolitans, you shouldn't forget that in Italy they do not consider you to be Italians. The country comes and asks for your support for just one day of the year, and for the other three hundred and sixty-four, they call you Africans. It is true that wherever we travel, they call us Africans. So that was Maradona, I think, before mm. just before the game, really, just sort of trying to get the Neapolitans on side before the semi-final against Argentina. Yeah, I mean, of all of all of the stars aligning, a semi-final of a World Cup, Argentina against Italy, and then they host it in Naples. Bloody hell. Yeah. Just, in a, in I don't a, know what they were expecting other than, you know, a bit of carnage. No, exactly, yeah. And it's 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 such a... It's, I mean, they're still... I went to, to Naples two, I want to say two years ago, and mm. when you're walking around, you see images of Maradona dotted around the place you've got murals on the, sh- the the metal shutters of shop fronts on telephone boxes on brick walls there's even an entire sort of tower block with his face painted all over it so you've got he's still considered a god there now mm. um but around this time i guess this is kind of where things turn just a little bit where he's mm. he goes from kind of being a, a god or a deity in the city to sort of the devil incarnate because now you've got him trying to play the neapolitans against the rest of italy so the game itself, um, you know, Italy take the lead. Um, I thought that 
it was a really nice bit of interplay between Giannini and Viali and that man again, um, Solacci was there, right place, right time, uh, and, and and got the goal again from a parried shot. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I I thought I thought it was really interesting, sort of watching him. You know, he he was sort of tracking the play the whole time and just got himself in the right place at the right time. And yeah, it was again similar to the goal against um, against Ireland. It was, you know parried away and then sort of poached in yeah it's another real yeah like you say another poacher sort of a poacher's effort fox in the box Skilachi. Yeah. i reckon he's offside though i, I did I've, I've double checked it and i've sort of looked back and i think that mm. yeah we've already mentioned var once but if they were around <laughs> they would have caused an absolute riot in naples there because as viali collects with the shot i'm yeah. pretty sure that Skilachi is sort of about half a yard over over but there, there's definitely i reckon if there's there's definitely like a twitter thread to be done on sort of world famous goals <laughs> That would have been called back by VAR. And I reckon you could definitely start with this one. Yeah, but was it daylight? (laughs) Was his armpit was his armpit onside? Was his ankle onside? (laughs) Yeah, where do you draw the line? Um but yeah, either way, the the Italians go one L up there. Yeah, and um Argentina claw one back. Um I thought that this was a really scrappy goal. Um it's Claudio Canigia. Um I it to me it looked like it came off of Zenga and then went in. Yeah, I I don't. I, it's it's really not a, a clean goal at all. It's very very scrappy. Um, you know, Zenga comes out to to try and get it, and it it, it looks. You know, obviously the the replays and everything are a bit scrappy because the the picture quality isn't great. But it, it looks like it almost like he heads it down onto Zenga and then it bounces off the back of him or something like that. Yeah, I can't can't see clearly what goes on, but. You have to feel for. I think I. I kind of feel bad for 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 Zenga because obviously he's kept what four. It's four clean sheets leading up yeah. to this game. Um, four? No, it's five. Yeah, five clean sheets. Yeah. I think it is leading up to this game, and then the first goal they concede is essentially his error, which he well he doesn't really live down. <laughs> yeah. And then Bajio gets a, a free kick in extra time, so the game finishes one one all. Goes to extra time. Bajo gets a free kick, and um, I think he really catches the the Argentina keeper sort of off guard. And it made me think, actually, sort of how how different football would be totally if that had gone in and Italy had just sort of won the game two one, because you would imagine that the relationship with um, you know naples and maradona would be different um you know baggio's reputation would have you know skyrocketed even quicker than it already was and yeah i mean it, i think that that's one of those moments where you look back and you go the whole game could have been totally different if if this one little thing had changed it, it was a really interesting one yeah no without a doubt i think that's what do you call it a sliding doors moment i guess where yeah, yeah if if that goes in they win 2-1 i guess the the relationship yeah like you say it doesn't get soured between maradona and naples he might actually stay for a bit longer mm. um because i i guess he's the he he slots the it goes to penalties right and yes yeah. he slots the fourth one in and then the the fifth italian one is missed and that's mm. where it's kind of seen as sort of Maradona, I guess, yeah, he completely sours his relationship with the Neapolitans and it's at that point that it completely turns. Mm. Um, and then he, sort of after the tournament, it's at that point he is left with no protection from the media and that's when all the sort of sordid details of his private life get leaked. His his house gets pelted with rocks. He's convicted of cocaine use in 1991 when 
it's kind of common knowledge that he'd been on cocaine for the majority of his seven year stint in Italy and mm. he gets kind of ushered out, out of the country, I guess, in the dead of night. So it's like, like you say, if Baggio scores that free kick, Italy win 2-1, maybe Maradona isn't seen as such a villain. He sticks around in Naples a bit longer. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a really interesting one. Like like you said, you, you've been to Naples before. You, you've seen... Um, and, and sort of physically heard the, the reverence that people still have for him there. Yeah, it's. I think the relationship has healed now, definitely. Mm. I think he's still seen as... I don't, I don't think he's actually allowed in the country because of tax issues, but um, mm. he's he's still seen as a god there. There's everywhere you look, there's kind of trinkets with sort of the, the Maradona 10. Between large, um, large-scale flat blocks, you've got washing lines with with napoli shirts on a lot of them will have married on the 10 and there's sort of mm. small you can buy little figurines of him and he's just everywhere the the, the man's face is everywhere throughout the city so I, I think i think that the relationship's definitely healed now but at this point at the end of summer 1990 it's where it all does really go off the rails for him yeah and you know it's it's, it's a shame and um argentina go on to the final and um Italy have a third place playoff against uh oh who is it again? <laughs> um Peter Shilton. Where to where to yeah, start? So That's all the, I'm gonna say. I think with the beauty of hindsight, I really enjoyed watching this back because Shilton's yeah. Rick at the bat and he sort of muffs up a back pass and I think it's Scalacci that nicks it. He gets the ball back to his feet, goes pick it up. He drops it on the floor again to sort of play out from the back, weirdly, in 1990. Um, yeah. And it's Scalacci that, I think it's him that, that nicks in and takes it off his feet. Yeah. Shilton goes to the ground. Yeah. And then Baggio yeah. dances around defenders and sticks it in the roof of the net for 1-0. Yeah. But. And it's a really interesting when you listen to like the English highlights of like you know that game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they talk about it being, you know, an, a, a really uncharacteristic error by Peter Shilton he was always sort of very aware of who was around him who was doing what and all of this and then this sort of momentary lapse yeah leads to you know King think, Poacher himself exactly being able to yeah. sort of grab it away and uh and, and that's his and that's his last appearance for England as well which is I feel mm. like that's kind of a shame you're going to be that if you're that sturdy kind of brick wall at the back for years and years and then you end on such a sour note in a third place playoff as well like a dead rubber yeah it doesn't really mean anything, but well, not not necessarily to the teams, but certainly to to some of the players. I mean, England's equaliser is a really good header from um, uh, mm. from David Platt. Absolute bullet header as well, top mm. corner. Yeah, and and he's he's quite quite young in this tournament as well. I mean, I don't I don't know if it's his his debut. I haven't sort of really looked into that, but you know, this is uh, you know it's a really good performance by him and a great header. Um, the so that levels it at one all, um, and then there's a penalty for Italy, and guess who scores it? <laughs> yeah, it was it wasn't Baggio the designated penalty taker, but he leaves it. He leaves it for yeah. Scalacci, right? Yeah, because when I was reading into this, it, it was basically that the team decided that you know if they if they weren't going to win anything, but they were going to get third place, the one thing that they wanted to make sure was that Scalacci got the golden boot, and he just needed one more goal and and that would be it so yeah uh, Italy get a penalty Toto takes it uh, Italy win 2-1 and he gets the golden boot yeah it's a nice gesture of goodwill there isn't it <laughs> hmm. um, yeah and, and that's yeah Italy host tournament of you know uh, 
know, it's Italia 90, they, they finished third. Um, I don't think that's a bad tournament. I don't think it's... Obviously, they every host would like to to win it. Um, I don't think it's a, a bad performance by them. Well, I think what you want when... I, I guess when you're watching a World Cup or Euros or anything, you want the host to kind of as get as far as possible to keep the fans on side. And I think if you can get... If the host can get to the semi-finals, at the very least, you kind of keep that kind of tournament atmosphere and the, the buzz of the country behind the team. I think whether they go to the third the third place playoff or the final, it's kind of here, neither here nor there because they've made it. They've got the full, they get the full seven games out of it. Um, it's like with Germany in 2006, I think as well. They managed to get to the semi-finals against Italy. Um, and I think you just keep that kind of buzz yeah. from the local crowd. Um, yeah, um when I was looking at some sort of like interesting stats around this tournament and players and things like that to sort of, you know, sort of cap off the sort of recap of uh, Italy, Italia 90, uh, Italy's performance of six wins, one draw and zero losses is the highest ever winning percentage for a team that did not win the world cup. Yeah. It's, it's impressive. I mean, manage, mm. like managing to get sort of those kind of results and still not win it must be pretty sour for the, for the Italian fans but yeah yeah especially it's, the it's way like an unwanted out. it's an unwanted statistic isn't it you don't want to be the ones that's the best team that's never won it yeah there's some quite brutal quotes after um uh, the sort of the reaction to going out from the Italians mm. so when they obviously lose to Argentina you've got and it's Scalacci comes out in the press and says um, the 1990 team had lots of excellent players and we played one of the best games by the national team we played without losing a game in that tournament we played well and we had the chance to go forwards and play against West Germany in the final, but the error of Walter Zenger compromised us going forward. As you know, we lost the semi-final on penalties. So he, he blames, uh, I feel like he really holds that quite close to his chest. He really blames Zenger for I think that's for harsh. going out. Yeah. Well, yeah, if he's going to, I mean, he, like I say, we kept five clean sheets and then the first yeah. the first goal they do concede in the tournament is that sort of unfortunate one that sends it to extra time and then penalties. But yeah. No, I mean, I hadn't read that quote before. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I don't know whether he's sort of taking it as a, a personal thing because when you look at his career sort of post this World Cup, you know, he had one more... We talk with Salazzi, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, yeah. Um, he had one more year at Juventus that was pretty average um, and then went to Inter, which, again, wasn't great. He scored 11 goals in 30 appearances. And then um, moved on to the J League in Japan um, for three years before oh, retiring. So Globetrotter. Yeah, so it's kind of like this World Cup was the the height of him, and afterwards it it sort of petered out a bit. And perhaps his sort of uh, regret or animosity or whatever is is to do with the fact that you know if they had won it. If you know Walter Zenger hadn't made a mistake or whatever, yeah. and they'd won it, then he he would have been sort of redeemed and seen as this you know absolutely brilliant player. And perhaps a part of it is him looking back over his own career and going, well, what could have been? Yeah, he might be seen as yeah like a like a world sort of a a great rather than just the answer to a pub quiz trivia question, I suppose, which <laughs> is a bit cruel. But yeah, sort of top scorer for nineteen ninety for the third place team to then go on and end up in the J League sort of twenty four months later. Yeah, they go on to win it. He might, I don't know, he might be revered a bit more, but which is a shame. Well, I really hope that he does come up in a pub quiz because I think it's something that I will remember for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, we'll be dead on that. <laughs> cool. Well, that was 
the first episode of Got Got Need, a World Cup podcast uh, looking at Italy at Italia 90. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Liam. Thanks very much. Cheers, Chris. And uh, we will see you again soon um, for another episode. Um, there's all sorts of ideas that we've got going on on things to cover, you know, teams, uh, player profiles, you know, particular incidents, particular things around World Cup. So uh, we hope that you enjoy and come back again soon. Yeah, stick with us. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye. Forse non sarà una canzone A cambiare le regole del gioco Ma voglio viverla così questa avventura Senza frontiere con il cuore in gola Il mondo in una giostra di colori E il vento accarezza le bandiere Arriva un brivido e ti trascina via E sciogli in un abbraccio la follia Notti magiche inseguendo un gol